Perhaps you could open again your Bibles at Luke chapter 18, page 1052, if you're using the Bible there in the pew. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God. Amen. This morning we've reached the end of a a short series in the parables of Luke's gospel. And this morning's parable is probably the simplest that we've looked at in these last five weeks. It's a simple but a very, very powerful story. Two men go to the temple to pray. One of them thinks that he know, he's best buddies with God. God is on his one-touch dialing, only a step away. The other believes that he's the kind of person whom God would never listen to. He'd never be able to make contact with God. But it's surprising when we read the story which of these two men God actually listens to. To understand the the story, we probably need to think for a moment just about who these two men are. Uh, One of those who went to church to pray, we're told, was a Pharisee. Now, as I use that word, Pharisee, I wonder what kind of an image you have in mind. It may be that you've no image in mind because you just don't really know what a Pharisee is, and that's okay because we're going to think about that for a second. If you're somebody who's been in and around church a lot, you will probably have a picture in your mind of what a Pharisee is. And my guess is that it's a very negative image. Now, in a sense, that's natural because when you read the Gospels, you find that Jesus is often very hard on the Pharisees. They seem to be at the brunt of any of his attacks on a regular basis. But we need to be careful this morning that we don't entirely misrepresent the Pharisees. These these folks were a very, very respectable branch of Jewish society and Jewish faith. They took their religion very, very seriously. We know that they, they tithed and they fasted, and they did all that because they wanted to see God work in Israel. They had good, good motives. So if you really want to understand what's going on in this Pharisee, we need to get away from that massively negative image that we have of a Pharisee and say that actually he's a good guy. He's somebody who's extremely serious about his faith. We can see that he fasts twice a week. That, by the way, is more than the law would have required. So our particular Pharisee here is is a particularly good guy. He gives 10% of all of his income to the church. That, again, is more than the law required. So that's the Pharisee. The facts are that he's a good, a good guy, a guy who seems to be regularly at worship and is serious about his faith. If we're looking for a modern parallel to the Pharisee, I think we're in the ballpark of a very committed church leader, someone who's, who's very active in church life, um, maybe even an elder, or maybe even a minister. I'll say that 
to include myself in the uncomfortable outcome. That's the Pharisee. What about the tax collector? Who's he? Well, tax collectors aren't popular nowadays. If somebody, if you meet somebody and strike up conversation and you ask them what they do, you know, if they tell you they work for the Inland Revenue or a tax man, it's, it's not, not something we warm to immediately. That, though, would, would only be scratching the surface of the negative attitude people would have had to tax collectors in Jesus' day. These were the hate figures in the society of the day. And there's a reason for that. Tax wasn't collected on an income basis uh, as most of, our, uh, most of us experience income tax nowadays. The tax that was collected in those days was always at the point where goods were bought and sold. So it was very like VAT. Now, to be a tax collector in Jesus' day, you really had to buy a franchise from the, the Roman authorities. They would then allow you to collect taxes for your district. Now, this is where it got a little bit... Well, this is where the corruption set in. If you owned a particular district, you were responsible for bringing in a particular income from that district. The Roman authorities, though, never asked any questions about how much you actually took from the people. So if you'd been given the district of East Belfast and you'd been told to tax it for a million pounds a year, you could go ahead and tax it for two million if you got away with it. And the people had to pay up because the tax collectors had the, the might of the Roman army at their disposal should anybody not pay the demanded taxes. Now, do you see why these guys were hated? They were wealthy, extremely wealthy, and they made all of their money off the backs of their own people. But being wealthy was only the half of it. They were collaborating with the, the, Roman, uh, the Roman authorities and the Roman army invaders in Palestine. These guys were hated. Again, I was trying to think of a modern equivalent for you. I think we're looking here at the, the paramilitary turned drugs pusher, the parasite on their own community, the person who will stop at nothing, who has no moral qualms, stops at nothing to gratify themselves and to become wealthy. Of course, there won't be any more of that now that the, the IRA statement has been made and we're, we're all getting nice, respectable jobs and leaving those ways behind. But in the past, that's the figure we're talking about. Okay, now that we've worked out who our two characters are, we need to, we need to think for a second about the outcome of this short and simple story. We need to work out why God listened to this this tax collector, and why he didn't listen to the Pharisee. Look with me at the prayer of the Pharisee in verse 11. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. Now, when you hear a prayer like that, you think, well, that's why God didn't listen to him. That's a, that's a shocker of a prayer, that. Can you imagine anybody standing here at the reading desk and, and praying like that? Again, I want you to be patient for a second. Let, let me run another prayer past you. These sorts of prayers, 
where you came to God and pleaded on the grounds of your own integrity were quite common in the Jewish culture. Listen to this. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to my integrity, O Most High God. Again, that's not the sort of prayer we would be likely to pray here, but that's a biblical prayer, a prayer of David from Psalm 7. So there's a bit of a background in which this, this Pharisee operates that makes this kind of prayer actually not as controversial as it would be to us. It seems to me that this fellow is, is probably genuinely grateful to God for the advantages that God has given him, for the life that he's ended up in. He thanks God that he's not like other people. If you've ever heard people giving their testimony here in Ulster, quite often a testimony, the story of God's work in their life, is prefaced by them saying something like, I'm thankful to God that I was brought up in a Christian home. I think that's not a million miles away from what this, this Pharisee is saying. God, I'm grateful that I have grown up in a community of people who love you, that, I'm, that I haven't been drawn into some of the other stuff like that tax collector over there. And another thing about the Pharisee, I think he's probably telling the truth. These things that he says about his, his living a righteous life before God, it's probably mostly true, maybe all true. He is different from others in society. He does give his time and his energy to serving God. He certainly is different from that fellow over there. So what is wrong? What's wrong with the Pharisee? What's the problem here? Now, this is, this is a parable many of you have heard maybe many times. I have been taught it many times, and I've even taught it a few times. And here are a couple of the things that, that I... I've maybe been taught. The biggest flaw of this Pharisee, I've been told, is that he's a hypocrite. That he's focused on outward religion, but he has no real inner faith in God. That's, that's maybe one problem. Or, or maybe he's trying to gain his salvation by his good works. You know, he goes on here about the good things that he does. Maybe he thinks that makes him right before God. But actually, when you read the parable, none of those accusations stick. There's no mention here in the story that either of those two things are a problem. And yet there's still, there's still something not quite right about the Pharisee's prayer. It, it's hard to put your finger on the exact problem, but there's something about this, this supposedly godly and, and upright man that just turns our stomachs. But what is it? Well, to get to the heart of this parable... And to find out what's not right with the Pharisee's prayer, we need to ask ourselves a question. I don't have any sweets with me, but if I was doing this for children, I'd say, hands up if anybody knows the question that I've been encouraging you to ask yourself when we look at biblical parables. I'll not wait for an answer. I'd be too embarrassing if nobody knew. The question I have been asking you every week to ask yourselves is the audience question. Whom in particular is Jesus addressing with this parable? Look at verse 9. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and who looked down on everyone else, Jesus 
told this parable. Isn't that it? Isn't that exactly what the problem is here? Overconfidence in our own righteousness and a looking down on others. Listen again to the the prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector, I give a I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. Jesus told this parable because he wanted to identify with this audience, the smug, self-righteous who were looking down on others. I think we've worked out what the parable means. Have you ever thanked God that you're not like these other sinful men. Not that you'd say it out loud, of course, but what about that smug, self-righteous feeling that you get on a Saturday morning when you meet your neighbor coming out of the, the newsagents, knowing that he's blown a tenner on a box of fags, his lotto, and the news of the world? Any, is that ringing any bells? What about when you drive past the point at closing time and you see folks staggering down the steps, their friends propping them up, making their way to the nearest alleyway to throw up? Ever felt smug as you've driven past? Ever thanked God that you're not like those sinners? Ever congratulated yourself on a Sunday morning as you've got your suit on, straightened a tie, and made your way out to church while your neighbor washes the car or goes for a round of golf? Every time we do that, we are in company with the Pharisee. Every time. Thanking God that I am not like other men. Folks, there's a question under, underlying all of this that we, we really need to get to grasp with in the church of Jesus Christ. And that is, what, what is this life that he's called us to? What does it mean to be holy, to use a, a biblical word? What is the different lifestyle that Jesus has called us to? And how do we align ourselves with others We know that God wants us to be different. We know that he wants us, in in the words of the Pharisee, not to be robbers or evildoers or adulterers. He wants us to, to hunger and to thirst after him like this Pharisee did. But I wonder, have we understood his call? This Pharisee clearly didn't. You see, he thought that obeying God's law made him better than other people who didn't do that. He thought that he was better than this tax collector. And he looked down on him, and he despised him. He thought that he knew what it meant to be holy. But he clearly didn't. He got it totally wrong. Friends, if I reflect on my upbringing in the church, if I reflect on my own life, I have to say that many, many times I've got this same thing wrong. When I'm out and about 
when I see people who don't give a stuff about God, it's easy for that to spark off a feeling of superiority. It's so tempting for all of us to thank God that we're not like these other people. It's tempting to look down on our noses, look down our noses at them and despise them. But it just won't do. And as I tried to, tried to work this out, I, I've come to this conclusion. If we have a picture of holiness that separates us physically from the presence of other people, we're barking up the wrong tree. Why do I say that? I'm not sure that we can understand the life that God has called us to and the holy life that He's called us to without keeping our eyes all the time on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the holiest man who ever lived. Do we agree on that? I'm sure we do. And yet Jesus, God in human flesh, spent his time with tax collectors, with prostitutes. I mentioned this last week at a sermon I was preaching at the joint evening service. Jesus has a nickname, and it's a nickname that, that we need to remind ourselves of. The religious establishment of Jesus' day called him friend of sinners, and it wasn't a compliment. They were basically saying, this guy can't be holy if he's friendly with sinful people. Friend of sinners. Jesus' nickname. As Christ's followers, that's exactly the kind of life that you and I are called to. Do you remember when people were giving Jesus a hard time about spending time with sinful people? He said an interesting thing. He says it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. Jesus came to be a doctor to sick people, to people who were in trouble, and maybe people who knew that. But when I look at the church today, I wonder, have we not almost entirely given up on being doctors to the sick? I have a, I have a picture of, of us having a, a God-given stash of the only vaccination in the world that can truly help sick and lost people. And we keep it, and we sit on it, and we lock it behind doors, and we put up signs that say, no entry, don't. We've given up on being doctors to the sick. Friends, we need to wake up. The church needs to get out of its religious ghetto. Ken Newell was right when he said during his year as a moderator, Jesus is locked inside the church and he's trying to kick the doors down to get out. We need to recover a little bit of Jesus. We need to, to start thinking about holiness in the terms that he demonstrated to us. And stop looking down our noses on others. Let me finish. It's been nearly two years since I came to Kirkpatrick Memorial and began to be your minister here. It's, it's been a wonderful couple of years. 
for me, and I hope that you found blessing in our church life together here. What's been particularly wonderful is to see a congregation that, that really was, well, we didn't appear to have much of a future together, but as the months have gone by and, and now the couple of years, we've seen God at work among us. We've seen him giving us a new life together here. Friends, I think we're at a very important time in the life of our congregation. In these early days of, of this new, new thing that God is doing here, we are being defined as a congregation. We're already becoming the kind of congregation that we're going to be. And that's, that's the question I want to leave you with this morning. What kind of a congregation are we becoming? As we enjoy God's blessings here, as we enjoy coming here on Sundays and, and other times during the week, I hope that we don't become smug. I hope that because things go well for us here when we're together, we don't forget about, or worse still, look down on people who are not yet part of what God is doing. Friends, I hope we never thank God that we're not like other men. My prayer for us is that we become a congregation that mirrors the kind of ministry that Jesus would do if he were in Valley Hackamore in 2005. Let me just suggest to you, if we do that, we might end up looking a bit different than the average Presbyterian church. That might be an outcome of a serious commitment to, to bringing God to people who are sick and needy. And I hope we're willing to do that. I hope our commitment to Christ and ministering as he calls us is more important to us than any, any other idea we have of what the church ought to be. Friends, if, if we did that, I think we might just earn ourselves a reputation here at Kirkpatrick. Like Jesus, the head of this church, the head of the body who, whom we are becoming, like him we might pick up this nickname, Friend of Sinners. I was telling the, the folks here last Sunday evening, as I've thought about that these last few weeks, I've become quite excited. I thought, there's a nickname I would love. I'd love to be known in Valley Hackamore as a friend of sinners, or whatever way people express that. Not, not the leader of that Presbyterian church, not that figure in the community stuff, not that formality and that distance from people. Friend of sinners. Let us pray. Father God, sometimes we get our life with you wrong. Sometimes we get it deeply wrong. We imagine that because you have blessed us and because you have called us 
to enjoy all your blessings that were better than other people. Straighten out our flawed thinking. Cleanse our filthy hearts. Make us people who are humble and grateful to you always for what you've done for us. And help us, Lord, to express that that humble gratitude with an open hand and a welcoming a welcoming stance towards all who don't yet know you and love you. Lord, we pray that you'd make us more like Jesus. Make us friends of sinners. Make us a congregation where that is our stance towards the community around us. Lord, we... We need you to do this work in us. And we pray that you would, by your Spirit, and begin here and now. Amen.